that end of your yes. Yeah. Invite you up here. <laughs> <laughs> this is just in two dimensions as well. You could be <laughs> yeah. there. Or just like, just oh, suspended. Yes. One ear pointing down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Have we got the equipment for that? Is that on? <laughs> Are we all fans of history? Yes. yes. Sorry, we're going to muck it up for you. <laughs> so, obviously, there's a certain anniversary today, isn't there? Yes. Which we probably will touch upon. But I thought it'd be nice to start the show, when we do start, by doing a countdown from 10 to 1, and then we'll blast off. So, how does that sound? Yeah. But we'll just get the, the nod first for starting up. Your lungs as well as we start. So, are we ready for that? Yeah. Okay. So, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's go! Welcome to It Just So Happened, the alternative history show. So, I am Richard Pulsford, stand up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, we'll explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 21st of July. That's before we delve into some of the history of the town where today's show is taking place. Now, we're in the Peak District in the spa town where they're so afraid of their water, they bottled it. Oh. Yes, Buxton! <laughs> so we're appearing as part of the Buxton Fringe Festival, which in 2019 is celebrating its 40th year. This show is being recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, but we also have a live audience who they may have been expecting an especially wide venue around the middle, as this is the Rotunda Theatre. I do puns in my spare time, by the way. So. Uh, yes, this is indeed more rotund than most, being a rather large geodesic dome inside Buxton's pretty pavilion gardens. And so let me now introduce the, if not returned, certainly larger-than-life panellists as they take their seats. First of all, please welcome Ben Ennis, <laughs> Gerard Harris, <laughs> James Frinton, <laughs> and Alistair Beckett-King. <laughs> so welcome to the panel. Our first guest is Ben Ennis. Now, Ben was a panellist in our very first show back in February. Ben is a resident of Leicester and works at the city's historic guild hall and therefore knows everything there is to know about Richard III, uh, which isn't much use here. Uh, but he does also have experience of drinking water. So over to you, Ben. Uh, thank you. Um, it's a different introduction, but uh, thank you. Um, last, uh, last time I was introduced uh, by Compare, he actually described me as a tubby Mozart. That was a bit harsh. Uh, but anyway, it does sound, uh, Ben Ennis does sound like a South African person saying bananas. <laughs> um, so uh, I've been given a, a topic, I've chosen a topic, which is Wild Bill Hickok. Has anyone heard of yeah. Wild yeah. Bill? Yeah. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. right. Um, so uh, on the 21st of July 1865, Wild Bill Hickok killed Davis Tutt in a shootout. Why is this significant? So. Wild Bill Hickok was a folk hero and, as the name suggests, an infamous figure uh, from the Wild West. Uh, obviously, he wasn't christened Wild Bill Hickok. Uh, he added the Hickok later. <laughs> uh, this was because somebody said to him, you're a hick, okay? <laughs> so it works better written down. 
<laughs> so he had many professions, uh, Wild Bill. Um, many historical figures do, by the way. I don't know if you've noticed this. For example, Da Vinci, uh, he was a scientist, artist, philosopher, mathematician, engineer, and cartographer. Uh, while Bill Hickok's vacations weren't as highbrow, but nonetheless he could still be considered a polymath. Uh, he was a drover, so he drove the buffalo. Uh, he was a wagon master, a soldier, spy, scout, lawman, gunfighter, gambler, showman, and later an actor. Uh, he was born in Illinois in 1837, when uh, vigilantism was increasingly prevalent. Lawlessness was rife and vice was rampant. Um, and just like in the movies, fights would often spontaneously break out in bars, um, and alcohol abuse was endemic. Uh, there was barely any law enforcement. Um, it was like uh, a night out in Stoke. <laughs> <laughs> so if you just imagine uh, the uh, weather schemes in Hamley on a Friday night, but not as rough. <laughs> give you an idea of what it was like. Um, he was convicted several times for rustling. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, this is the act of eating loudly in a cinema. A heinous offence. On this day in 1865, uh, Wild Bill killed Davis Tutt in an arranged quick draw duel. Um, it was the first of its kind on record. The pair had fell out over gambling and women. Was it worth it? I don't know. So, um, so Wild Bill was arrested for murder. The judge was Sempronius H. Boyd. He was also a politician, lawyer, teacher, diplomat, impresario, lion taper, and trolley collector at middle. Uh, Wild Bill's charge was not only downgraded to manslaughter prior to the trial, uh, but Judge Boyd suggested to the jury that the verdict be a nullification. So this is why it was historically significant. Um, these are quite popular, obviously, in Wild West films, these quick-draw duels. They very rarely happened, but this set a precedent, which basically suggested that he could go out and, and do them with impunity. Um, so the jury uh, concurred with uh, uh, Boyd's recommendation, and uh, much to much controversy and consternation, uh, Wild Bill was acquitted. Um, his act had been deemed part of a fair fight. So uh, I actually met a, a Native American um, Indian who claimed his great-grandfather knew Wild Bill, um, which was incredible. Um, I, I said to him, this is, this is fantastic, can we have a photograph? And he said, no. He said, if you take my photos, this ancient Navajo tradition, you will take my soul. He says, you take our photo, you take our souls. I said, just point out the arseholes, I'll take their photo. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said to him, anyway, um, taking a photograph, just how ancient can this Navajo tradition be? <laughs> so uh, he said to me, do not mock my culture. Since the Clovis megafauna entered the, uh, the homeland, uh, the Navajo, the Cherokee, and the Apache strode across the plains into the west of America. We survived the cholera epidemic of the 19th century. We resisted the indoctrination of Ursula uh, in uh, 1727, and we even defeated General Pooster in the Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1876. He said, uh, look at me, is that an iPhone 6 you've got there? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I said, uh, it is actually. Uh, he said, how about a selfie? Yeah. So um, there we go. Um, what he didn't know was I've got an app on my phone called uh, Soul Downloader, 
I now own his soul on my laptop. Um, and uh, they've, they've always got names like Sitting Bull or Fighting Bear, that's a fair one by now. Um, his name was Flying Toaster. Um, might explain that, that's actually a screensaver for Toaster. <laughs> there we go. Well, it was worth it. <laughs> 150 mile round trip from Leicester to do that joke. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, so to sort of conclude really, um, Wild Bill went on to become a lawman um, and even went on to become an actor. Um, this was problematic, um, especially when the director shouted, Shoot! Um, I'm kidding, we've established there's no cinemas uh, back in the Wild West. Um, so, um, quite a seminal figure really in the Wild West, Wild Bill. Um, he was uh, shot from behind whilst playing poker, and that's how he died at the age of 39. Uh, it was a re revenge attack. Um, the hand that he actually had uh, is now called the Death Hand in Poker. Uh, it was two pairs, uh, two aces, uh, the eight of clubs, I think. Um, and that is reputed to be how that got its name, that hand in poker. So, um, and yeah, yeah, one or two wounds. So that's it, and it just goes to show really just how out of control gun crime was in the USA 200 years ago. Um, <laughs> and so that's Wild Bill Hickok. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. On the 21st of July, 356 BC, the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the world, was destroyed by arson. It was a Greek temple dedicated to an ancient local form of the goddess Artemis, uh, being the goddess of the hunt, the wilderness, wild animals, the moon and chastity. Now the temple had been rebuilt once before after a devastating flood in the 7th century BC. This fire was started in the wooden roof beams by Herostratus, who was seeking fame at any cost. The Ephesians sentenced him to death and forbade anyone from mentioning his name. But we know who did it thanks to the historian Theopompus, who later noted it. And Herostratus has since become a metonym for someone who commits a criminal act in order to become famous. The poet laureate Colley Cibber, in his 1699 rework of Richard III, wrote, the aspiring youth that fired the Ephesian dome outlives in fame the pious fool that raised it. There you go, Ben, Richard III. In uh, Greek and Roman historical tradition, the temple's destruction coincided with the birthplace of Alexander the Great. Plutarch remarked that Artemis was too preoccupied with Alexander's delivery to save her burning temple. Alexander offered to pay for its rebuilding, but the Ephesians refused the offer, and the temple was eventually completely rebuilt and lasted for another 600 years. The site of the temple was only rediscovered in later times, in 1869. It was excavated and there is a colossal carved column drum on display in the British Museum. And uh, some of the columns in Istanbul's Hagia Sophia, the one-time cathedral, then mosque, originally came from the Temple of Artemis. Anyway, on to our second guest. So this is Gerard Harris. Now, Gerard was a guest in our show in Ludlow last month, where... He valiantly attempted to share completely original material on Brexit. Um, <laughs> three years to the day after the infamous referendum. Uh, but as we discovered, Gerard is a talented stand-up and storyteller. 
uh, who likes to perform with his shoes off, it seems. Uh, he has indeed written and performed award-winning solo shows, including at Buxton Fringe. So over to Gerard Harris. Thank you, Richard. Uh, Seven minutes of original material on Brexit, uh, having lived in Canada for the last 12 years, as well as, uh, so not uh, previously having given a shit. Um, <laughs> having not picked the moon landings, um, uh, it turns out this, uh, J July 21st, is almost entirely just full of death, destruction, and tragedy. Um, uh, for example, 1866, a cholera epidemic kills hundreds of people in London on, the, on just one day. 1944, Klaus von Stauffenberg and 200 uh, conspirators are tortured and executed in Germany for the plot to assassinate Hitler. 1972, the provisional IRA detonate 22 bombs in central Belfast uh, in the space of 80 minutes, killing nine and injuring 130. 1973, Lillehammer, Norway, Mossad agents kill a waiter went, whom they mistakenly thought was involved in the 1972 Munich Olympics bombings. 2005, the London bombings. Uh, 1972, also New York, 57 murders occur in 24 hours. And in 1994, Labour picked Tony Blair to be their leader. So, <laughs> um, so uh, um, uh, rich pickings for comedy. Uh, I, I, I have found just a couple of things I'd like to talk about. Um, very briefly, because it's supposed to be a local show. 1969, after eight years of preparation, yes, man landed on the moon. 1970, after 11 years of construction, the Aswan Dam in Egypt was completed. And in 1904, after only 13 years, the 4,607 mile Trans-Siberian Railway is completed. 16 years the Crescent has been under innovation. <laughs> Anybody can explain to me how it took, uh, that's what, uh, already twice the length of time it took to get to the moon and back. Um, on a postcard. But uh, for me, the most interesting thing that happened on 21st of July was in 1320 when uh, Louis I, Count of Flanders, married Margaret, Countess of Burgundy. He was 16 and she was 10. Uh, by the time he was 19 and she was 13, the peasants were in open revolt and there was a full-scale rebellion that lasted for five years, resulting in Louis's capture for a year. And after a peace agreement where he was freed, that only lasted a year, more trouble broke out and he was actually unable to return to Flanders and died on the battlefield uh, in 1346. Still, they found time to have a son in 1330, and if you're too lazy to do the maths, yes, they waited. Uh, <laughs> who was imaginatively named Louis II, uh, who then married another Margaret, this time Margaret of Brabant, or Brabant, I don't know, uh, also when he was 16. However, this Margaret wasn't 10. No, she was, anyone? 24! Uh, uh, how is that possible? It's difficult to tell from the etchings of the time, and I looked, um, but she wasn't much of a looker. Uh, still, they had one child, a daughter born in 1350, but Louis had a couple more kids. Well, ten, uh, in fact, that we know of. So obviously it was a very happy marriage, uh, which is maybe why in 1371 this Margaret went with Margaret, her mother-in-law, to dinner in Lens and decided never to go home again. Uh, instead, she moved to a county far from Louis, where she lived another nine years, and she never saw him again. Now, their daughter, yes, she was also called Margaret, um, was born in 1357, uh, was born in 1350, and in 1357, when she was seven years old, she married, yes, Philip I, Duke of Burgundy, grandson and heir of Margaret's sister. He was 11. Four years later, he died in a riding accident. 
there's nothing funny about that. Um, leaving no heir, and I should hope not. <laughs> uh, um, but he did leave a wife who was now titled up to the eyeballs, so everyone else wanted to marry her. Her grandmother, Margaret I, favoured the marriage of her granddaughter to Philip the Bold, the Duke of Burgundy and the youngest son of the King of France, while her father, Louis II, preferred she married an Englishman, quite right, uh, and so he refused to arrange the marriage. Reputedly, Margaret, and I'm quoting from a popular history of France from the earliest times by François-Pierre-Guillaume-Guizot, vexed at the ill will of the Count, her son, she one day said to him, as she tore open her dress before his eyes, Since you will not yield to your mother's wishes, I will cut off these breasts which gave suck to you, to you and to no other, and will throw them to the dogs to devour. So in 1369, uh, when she, Margaret was 19, Louis agreed that she will be married to Philip the Bold. Uh, his mum got to keep her tits, the, the, the dogs went hungry, and <laughs> Philip the Bold kept his reputation, because I think you've got to be pretty bold to marry a woman who is already widowed at 11, and whose grandmother threatened to cut her own tits off and feed them to the dogs if she doesn't get her way. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> um, that's about it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what were you? Do you know what else? The Dutch in Dutch, I mean, the Netherlands approved death penalty for sodomy. Um, uh, uh, yeah, the Dutch are famous for many liberal attitudes. No, liberalised se sex work, decriminalised marijuana, two unlimited Venga boys. But um, there's really nothing funny about um, criminalising sodomy. It's actually one of the best things. Um, uh, I have got some. Did you know Artemis was um, twin sister of Apollo? Um, just to into the moon. I mean, and Artemis, sadly, is the name of what Trump has appointed the, the new moon in Atlantis to be. Um, so, watch that space. Uh, Literally. Yes, <laughs> Right. I think I've said enough. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alex. Well, it was the 21st of July, 1403, when the Battle of Shrewsbury was fought. An army led by the Lancastrian king, Henry IV, who wanted it pronounced Shrewsbury, triumphed over a rebel army led by Henry Harry Hotspur Percy from Northumberland, who wanted it pronounced Shrewsbury. <laughs> uh, the battle was the first in which English archers fought each other on English soil, and it took place in a large field of peas. An ideal factoid for a podcast. <laughs> the battle and many of those involved appear in Shakespeare's Henry IV Part One although the appearance of Sir John Falstaff was entirely made up. During the real fighting, Prince Henry, Prince of Wales, suffered a terrible wound to the face from an arrow. He later recovered, though, thanks to the skill treatment of the physician general John Bradmore, who used honey, alcohol, and specially designed surgical instruments to extract the arrowhead. Although, unsurprisingly, Henry was left with a permanent scar. Shakespeare has Hotspur been killed by Prince Henry, likely untrue, uh, his face after death, though, was rather gruesome. He was initially buried by his nephew, Thomas Neville, at Whitchurch in Shropshire, with honours. But rumours soon spread that he wasn't really dead. So the king had his body in disinterred, salted, and set up in Shrewsbury, impaled on a spear between two millstones in the marketplace uh, with an armed guard. The body was later quartered and put on display in Chester, London, Bristol, and Newcastle. His head was sent to York and impaled on the north gate looking towards his own land. 
Now in November, his grisly remains were returned to his widow, Elizabeth, presumably by royal mail, <laughs> in five different parcels. But he was eventually buried in York Minster. Now, on to our third guest. This is James Frinton. Now, James has been performing comedy for over 20 years. He doesn't look that old, but that's what he tells me. Uh, he's since enjoyed sharing the stage with notable acts, including Reginald D. Hunter, Frankie Boyle, and Ross Noble. They all went on to massive success. <laughs> <laughs> and he's here today in the Rotunda in Buxton. Um, his show at the Edinburgh Fringe this year is called An Atlantic Disaster Titanic which has been described as mindfulness on ice and promises to test the boundaries of art and entertainment using ice cubes and a metal bucket. Over to you, James. Thank you very much. Indeed, I have a special interest in the Titanic and uh, my show uh, has recently been selected as one of the top six weird shows to capture the fringe. I, I think that's a good thing. We will see. Anyway, uh, I did find something related to the Titanic from this very day, the 21st of July. We might think that fake news is a modern phenomenon, but how about this? Reported in a number of newspapers on the 21st of July 1912. And just to remind you, this was a few months after the sinking of the Titanic in April uh, of that same year. The Titanic sank with a loss of over 1,500 lives, including famously the captain, Captain Smith, who went down with his ship. Or did he? New York Times report from Baltimore, Maryland. This is an authentic American accent, by the way. <laughs> July 1912. Captain Peter Pryor, one of the oldest mariners in Baltimore, and well-known in shipping circles, who sailed with Captain Smith of the Titanic uh, when Captain Smith was commander of the Majestic, made the startling statement today that he saw and talked to Captain Smith yesterday at Baltimore and St. Paul Streets. He declares he walked up to Captain Smith and said, Captain Smith, how are you? Then, according to Pryal, the man answered, very well, Pryal, but please don't detain me. I am on business. He says he followed the man, saw him buy a railroad ticket for Washington, and as he passed through the gate at the railroad, railroad station, he turned, recognized Pryal again, and remarked, be good, shipmate, until we meet again. There is no possibility of my being mistaken, said Captain Pryal uh, today. I have known Captain Smith too long. I would know him, this is the important bit, even without his beard. I firmly believe that he was saved and in some mysterious manner brought to this country. I am willing to swear to my statement. Now, just to interrupt before I finish this article, many people reading this may think the man had lost the plot. They may assume he was ill, ill, unwell, uh, to suggest such a thing. But Pryal and the newspaper had an answer for this. Pryal continued. Many persons may think I am insane. It's got a, a little bit torn from there, I appreciate <laughs> But I have told Dr. Warfield of the occurrence, and he will vouch for my sanity. Dr. Warfield said tonight that Captain Brown was indeed perfectly sane. The captain is well-to-do and is a consistent church member. And, as we all know, well-to-do and consistent church members can always be trusted. <laughs> I had a look to see if there was any connection between Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, Buxton, and I couldn't find much. Although, if you go 20 miles to the northwest of Baltimore, how about this? Uh, there's a private housing estate, and on that housing estate, if you zoom in on Google Maps, you will find a road called Buxton Circle. Amazingly, it's more of a U-shape, and it's a shame they didn't call it Buxton Crescent. Yeah. 
300, I had to zoom out a bit more, but I've done some serious research here. 376 miles south of Baltimore is a small fishing town, you may call it. It's called Buxton, it's in North Carolina, and it's actually located on a thin strip of barrier island called Ateras Island. It's famous for fishing, it's known as the blue marlin capital of the world. And now here is the spooky thing, which I couldn't quite believe when I carried on my research. There is, would you believe, a blue marlin fishing chip shop in Wakefield, wait for it, and a marlin fish bar in Swaddling Cove, Derbyshire. If you draw a line between those two fishing chip shops, would you believe the exact centre point of that line is only 20 miles from Buxton? <laughs> How spooky is that? By the way, just before I finish, that article was written by the New York Times, and it did make me think about the many similarities between Buxton and New York. New York has Central Park, you have the Pavilion Gardens. New York has the Empire State, you have Solomon's Temple. And New York is famous for the city that never sleeps, whereas Buxton is the town that sometimes wakes up. <laughs> Thank you, that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Twenty first of july fifteen forty five, that marked the first landing of French troops on the coast of the Isle of Wight during a French invasion and the probable date of the Battle of Bonchurch, where about five hundred French soldiers fought a larger English force of militiamen. The island's population was about nine thousand at the time, but because of the frequent raids and invasions by the French during the Hundred Years' War, the islanders were well prepared to defeat this new invasion. All men underwent compulsory military training, and some women were even trained as archers. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> uh, most sources say the English won the battle, while one claims the French did. Now, this source says that the English commander, Captain Robert Fisher, shouted an offer of £100 for anyone who could bring him a horse to escape, his being too fat to run. Does that remind you of anyone, Ben? <laughs> Uh, the reference is Richard III, not you being too fat to run. <laughs> anyway, uh, Fisher was never heard from again, and the account suggests that he was either killed or captured and buried at sea. Do you want to hear a really bad joke about the Isle of Wight that I looked up? Yeah. yeah. What's brown, steamy, and comes out of cows backwards? The Isle of Wight ferry. <laughs> yes. I'll, let, I'll edit that out then. Um, <laughs> yes, it is an old one. I looked it up. Yes, it's a bad quality. Bad quality. <laughs> so anyway, on to our fourth guest. So this is Alistair Beckett King. Alistair was winner of the Natty's New Act of the Year show 2014, and winner of the Leicester Mercury Comedian of the Year 2017. He's also a filmmaker and illustrator, and knows quite a lot about 19th century magicians. His podcast, Lorimer with James Shaft investigates local legends and forgotten folklore. His latest show, the Interdimensional ABK, is here in Buxton at the Underground venue this evening and tomorrow night, I believe. So, over to Alistair, thank you. Thank you. Uh, the podcast is called Lawmen, but it's spelled oh, L-O-R-E. Yes. But it's a pun that doesn't work because you have to keep explaining it to people. And also, we have American <laughs> listeners, and of course, it's Lawmen in an English accent, but it's Lawmen. Lawmen, lawmen. The pun doesn't. It's a bad name. It's a bad. There's a real problem with the name. Um, I just felt I should concede that. Um, hello. Hello. Hi. Um, my name is uh, Alistair Beckett King, as you heard. Um, just to explain who, who I am, uh, my dad is Samuel Beckett, the surrealist playwright and time traveller. And uh, my mum is the boxing promoter Don King. <laughs> that should give you a little bit of context. 
Um, I, I, I didn't realize that I had drawn the, whatever the long straw is, the best straw. I didn't realize that the moon landings was the best one. And so now there's a lot of pressure on, on and it's, it's not gonna hold up is what I'm saying. And also I've, I've forgotten to make it in any way relevant to Buxton. So let's not forget that the moon is visible from Buxton. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty much everything is contained within Buxton. This is a very Buxton perspective on the moon. So as we all know, the, the moon landing program has, has come up in the show already. The moon landing program was called Apollo 11. Now, by the time a program has been running that long, the writers tend to be running out of ideas. Now, when, uh, when Apollo started, it was basically a family sitcom. And then by season 11, they were just going, oh, uh, what, if, what if they went to the moon? Like, uh, you know, <laughs> like they could go to space. Yeah, that could work. Like, what if one of them opened a restaurant? Yeah, and the customers were ghosts. You know, so that's, that's where that came about. Other series that have run to 11 or more installments include the Aliens franchise, The Land Before Time, and of course, none of us could forget Ginger Dead Man versus Evil Bomb, which is a real film. Uh, but e even in that, that even that has been going downhill since the second instalment, Ginger Dead Man <laughs> 2, Passion of the Crust. <laughs> a real film. Um, 11, is, it's, a it's a tricky number. It's a tricky number even for other numbers, you know? Like 9-1, fine. 9-2, not a problem. 9-11, oh, very edgy number. It's a, it's a tricky, tricky number. But Apollo, of course, uh, the, the word, is Spanish for towards chicken. <laughs> All right. No, it, I didn't think I was going to go away with that. No, it just, it, you know already it comes from the god Apollo. But I don't get why it's Apollo, because Apollo is like an oracular god. I think it should have been Hermes, because he was the, the winged messenger to the god. It would have made way more sense to call it Hermes. And I can only think the reason they didn't call it that was because it's one letter away from herpes. <laughs> uh, all you would need would be a communist with a marker pen to really ruin the whole thing. <laughs> so, uh, quiz question. I am gonna, I'm gonna get to the facts now. First, uh, quiz question for you, you the audience. First man on the moon. Neil Armstrong. Correct, Noel Edmonds. The, <laughs> the first man on the moon was Noel Edmonds and uh, he stepped off the lunar lander and he uttered those immortal words, uh, which we all uh, etched in humanity's collected memory. Here's one. Small step for man, one buoyant leap for mankind. And it truly was a buoyant leap, Ooh. an absolutely bibantic leap for <laughs> mankind. Although, I do have to say that in that context, man and mankind are synonyms for each other. So he basically said, this is one small step for mankind, one giant leap for mankind. Which is very frustrating, because you can't correct someone when they're on the moon. It's like, <laughs> he said it on the moon, so we now all just have to pretend that that isn't wrong. It doesn't. It's very. It's like if someone says something racist during a, a wedding toast. You have to sort of go, <laughs> not really. It's very, very frustrating to me. Oh, come on. Come on, Noel. So the uh, first man on the moon was uh, television's Noel Edmonds. The second man on the moon? Bruce Forsyth. <laughs> the second man on the moon was Bruce Forsyth, correct? Uh, as we all know, the third man on the moon was Mick Hucknall. Now, well, so I, I should say, of course, Hucknall didn't leave the shuttle. That's why people often forget he was there. He, he, he stayed in the shuttle all the way through, but he was there. Now, now, it's impossible to talk about this without talking about conspiracy theories. A lot of people are saying, what was Hucknall even doing on the Apollo mission, you know? Isn't he more sort of known for his, his music work? And it makes sense when you realize that they actually wanted Bono. But the problem is, in an enclosed space, 
Bono will suck all of the oxygen <laughs> with his ego, and so it just it isn't, it isn't practical for, for space flight. Um, so they ended up with Hucknall, which I think is a good choice, but I have to say I have a, a, a tense relationship with uh, Hucknall, because as listeners won't be able to tell, I, I, have, I, ha I have red hair, and that means that strangers sometimes think I look like Mick Hucknall, and, so, and, and I can tell that they're thinking that, because, because they go, um, Oh, simply red, you look like Mick Hucknall. Oh, simply red, you look, you look like Mick Hucknall. And I pick up on subtle cues like that. <laughs> um, but it's annoying because, as all of you who've seen me and Mick Hucknall can tell, I don't look like Mick Hucknall. We have distinctly different faces. All I have in common with Mick Hucknall is I have the same colour of hair as Mick Hucknall. So people who say that, it just, it's just racism. It is, it's just racism, basically. But you can't tell them that. Not without ruining the wedding toast. <laughs> now, obviously, some conspiracy theorists think everything that I'm saying here is complete nonsense. They think it's all bollocks. Um, like, some people think that Kubrick shot the whole thing in Pinewood with actors. Now, okay, what is less likely, that humanity landed on the moon, or that an actor would shut up for a minute about a job they'd done? With, with, you know, one dinner party would be all it would take to blow that conspiracy wide open. Uh, so I said to darling Stanley, <laughs> he asked for a sixth take. I, I said the same thing I said to Gielgud during the Kennedy assassination. Like, obviously, they weren't actors. They definitely weren't actors. Um, you'll notice there were no women on, on the mission, and the, the argument for that at the time was, um, well, there were women who worked on the, the project. You'll have seen there's a famous photograph of uh, one of the women standing next to a pile of code that she wrote to, to get them to the moon. Uh, what people don't realize is that those are written on post-it notes, and she's tiny, like a borrower. Um, the explanation was that they didn't have time. It, uh, you know, they said, um, uh, gentlemen, um, we, we have a packed itinerary. We are going to land the lunar module. Noel and Bruce Forsyth will get out. And then uh, we have a few short hours for jumpy, jumpy, jumpy. Just a very small amount of jumpy, jumpy, jumpy for science. Then we do the flag, get a picture, a little bit more jumping, a quick round of golf, hardly any golf, <laughs> jumpy, 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 straight back home. So there just won't be time for any women's business. Uh, of course, that, that's what they said. The, the real reason was they were concerned that, as, we, as, as they believe, the moon controls women's periods. And as we all know, gravity increases exponentially as proximity increases. And so basically they feared that if a woman were to land on the moon, she could just drive it about using her uterus. <laughs> now, we wouldn't be worried about that now, of course, because we know that statistically women are very good drivers. So it's not a concern. The reason we know so much about the moon landings, um, there are some moon landing facts in this, by the way. The reason we know so much about the moon landings is that it was televised as part of a documentary series called The Clangers. Which was narrated by Oliver Postgate, of course, and I, I think looking looking at the general age of the audience, I think you remember Oliver Postgate. Yeah. But if you if you don't, he spoke very slowly and adorably, and that's how every single documentary should be narrated. I think all of them, even ones that are about like neo Nazis, it should be look. There's tiny Nazi. What, what's he doing? Oh dear, what a mistake. <laughs> I just think that, okay. Uh, so, so uh, finally, I'd like to end with an actual semi-fact about the moon landing, um, which is that when the Apollo boys sort of took off, they took moon rocks with them, as we all know, but they didn't want to change the moon's mass, and so they left behind Noel Edmonds's space boots, and that is, 90% of that is true. Um, well, that's the official line, that it was the mass thing. Um, I think the real reason is that Noel is like, um, you, know when, you know when women have gone on a night out 
in a pair of really fancy shoes, and then it gets to a certain point in the night, and they're like, ah, oh, I'm not wearing these back, you know, I'm not running for a space shuttle in these, oh. you know, basically, I'm not, oh, not after all that jumping. So that, basically that's the lesson of my, my moon landing uh, story, that Noel Edmonds is the kind of guy who goes to the moon with a pair of flip-flops in his handbag, in case it's a little bit too much room at the end. And you can see him, you know, maybe queuing up for a kebab in a full spacesuit with bare feet at the end of the day, or if Nando's is open, he might pop in for a cheeky towards chicken. <laughs> Thank you, Alison. Twenty first of july sixteen forty five, the Qing Dynasty Regent Dorgan issued an edict ordering all Han Chinese men to shave their forehead and braid the rest of their hair into a queue identical to those of the Manchus. Now, one day, many years ago, I had a sudden realisation that I'd grown my own hair long enough to braid into a queue. So I tried it, uh, but it proved impractical. As soon as I heard the announcement, cashier number two, please, the coal queue had to move forward with me to that cashier, and there was hell to pay. Uh, anyway, under Dorgan's regency, Qing forces occupied Beijing, the capital of the fallen Ming dynasty, and gradually conquered the rest of China in a series of battles uh, against the Ming loyalists and other opposing forces around China. The hairstyle edict was on pain of death, and there were massacres in southern Chinese cities where inhabitants resisted the imposition of the law, all because of a hairstyle. Uh, Dorgan himself died suspiciously in 1650 on a hunting trip and something nasty happened to his body afterwards, but he was then posthumously rehabilitated and restored of his honorary titles by the Qian Long Emperor in 1778. So there was a happy ending concerning the one-time regent, or as he should be known, the heir apparent. <laughs> so uh, we come to the second half of the show. I'm sure lots of you here are interested to know what we're going to say about Buxton. And I think it'd be fair to talk about the, the water, first of all. So uh, this is a sort of open season. If you want to chip in, please do. I'm just going to uh, introduce subjects and, and bring out factoids, etc. But uh, yeah, the Romans first developed a settlement here and called it Aquae Arnometii, which roughly translates as place of bottled spring water filtered through limestone best before end 2022. <laughs> uh, the water comes from St Anne's Spring, originated from uh, meteoric waters at the end of the last ice age about 5,000 years ago. So uh, this makes Buxton's water older than the earliest known Sumerian and Egyptian writing and contemporaneous with both the settlement of Scarabray on Orkney and the birth of Keith Richards. <laughs> <laughs> no one's fighting yet? Well, no, the, the, oh, oh, yes, I'm sorry. thinking that the, uh, now this is based on very little research but seeing something, that the, the water springs, you do a sort of knitted thing around the springs, you, you sort of decorate the springs in a sort of weird pagan festival that was invented presumably by hippies in the 70s, is that true? Well dressing. Well dressing, well dressing. that's yeah, well that, I have nothing to add. Except that. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that adorable? It is adorable, and I'll tell you what else is adorable, what the Buxton Spa Water Company have done on their website, uh, bringing it up to uh, date, I don't know if you've seen, but they've got a, a special water-inspired play playlist for runners. They say, when you're motivated and hydrated, you're unstoppable. And it includes uh, Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple, The Weather Girls, It's Raining Man, 
and the whole of the moon by the water boys but the thing i realized i don't think they know how clever they're being by including the water boys because i can only imagine the lyrics were inspired by a visit to buxton on the night of a full visible lunar event when they wrote you saw the crescents and i saw the whole of the moon Reinforces my assertion that the moon is visible from Buxton. So. So I'll just ask the panelists' question: Do you know what's odd about Water Street? There's no water on it. There is water, but there's no buildings. So Water Street, uh, I believe, has no buildings. Uh, but it did used to once have a public toilet. It's just there a river. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Just water the, around the country there's lots of um, Sherburn, Sherburns and Sherburn streets and most of those um, I, I think we can swear on the podcast if people already, already have them yes. most, of, most of those uh, used to be called shit, Shitburn yeah. and, uh, and, and they have all been sort of boulderised so um, well, perhaps Water Street has had a similar cleaning up. <laughs> Unlike Shittington in Dorset, um, which, uh, 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 which my father lives very near and is very, very tired of people stealing the sign. Uh, and it's called Shittington um, uh, because it's where people used to shit. <laughs> people used to shit at the top and then it would, the shit would all collect down at the bottom uh, where the village was. Because uh, uh, there is a stream there, and it's oh, that doesn't like a good place to shit. And so poor old Shittington got it out. It's a beautiful town. It's a beautiful little village. Um, uh, none of us can afford to live there, but um, very fertile, I should imagine. Yeah. <laughs> like the Nor Loch used to be where Princess Gardens is now in Edinburgh. So yes, there's lots of daffodils and so on grow there. Uh, there is a place just north of Newcastle called Shillbottle on the A1. And every time I drive down the A1 someone gets a marker pen and puts uh, a cross through the first L so it looks like shit bottle uh, there's this constant battle between people putting marker pens to make it shit bottle and people putting tipex on to make it back to shit bottle so, you, know, yeah. you, know, you know in Austria in, in Austria when you drive through Austria when you enter a town it's the name of the town and then when you leave the town it's the name of the town with a red line going through it and when my father and I drove through farting um, <laughs> you arrive and apparently farting is now allowed and then a, mi a mile later when you leave farting, no farting. <laughs> Can I just mention, um, just bringing it up a, a, a notch or two. Yeah. Uh, we should yes. say, although it's been recorded at lunchtime, you can listen to the podcast at any time, uh, perhaps away from meal times. but I should say <laughs> that when I did stay in a hotel a few years ago, here in your very great town of Buxton, um, I was amazed and I'm still amazed whether it actually happened as I walked into the hotel room there by the bed on the bedside table was a complimentary bottle of water Harrogate Spa water <laughs> <laughs> so uh, something went wrong there. infiltration yeah. I was trying to understand the history of St Anne's well I was quite interested to know that in 1538 I think this description was that because of Henry VII and Thomas Cromwell regarding idolatrous behaviour because people were like leaving their crutches and getting the holy water behind so the, the quote said that the chapel was dissolved which I thought was rather amusing because it like, was like acid is it like acidic water now I also read about Bennett Street now that's so called because it was laid out on land belonging to a local physician Dr Robert Ottywell Gifford Bennett and the sign at the top of the road used to be misspelt with two T's 
while the one at the bottom of the road was spelt correctly with only one T for Bennett. Now, however, the signs were recently changed and the disparity was rectified, so now both successfully misspelled the name with two T's. <laughs> I was intrigued to know about the Shakespeare Hotel, which was in Buxton Spring Gardens apparently from 1711 all the way to 1926. The site was later occupied by Woolworths, since closed, and it's now a mountain warehouse apparently. Um, I believe that was of interest to one of the panel. It was it indeed, was. yeah. Yes. And in fact, I think that was probably my first paragraph. The, um, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You've got pretty... a second paragraph. No, no, indeed, oh. indeed. And in fact, um, I was going to say that Woolworths, uh, which was uh, there, uh, opened in 1926, sadly closed in 2009. And although it's worth saying that the year before 2008 may well be remembered for a long time as the year of the banking crisis, I have a feeling that uh, 2009 will be remembered for a long time to come, uh, as many of us uh, take time to recover from the great 2009 pick and mix crisis. <laughs> um, the, uh, the arch which leads to the horse stables remains today and is access to the Shakespeare garage, presumably where he took his Mondeo, and this may be the oldest remaining structure. The present-day Mountain Warehouse store stands on the same site, famous for outdoor clothing, and as I wandered past there earlier, I thought to myself that uh, it's got everything the intrepid mountaineer would want. Uh, let's face it, while you're waiting in the queue to get to the summit of Everest, half-price gilets, flip-flops and a picnic chair could all come in. Uh, I could continue about the connection between uh, Buxton well, and Shakespeare, or should we save it for later? Well, um, I was going to talk about the Shakespeare Garage. Please. Is that OK? Yeah. So, obviously, it was named after Shakespeare, the garage, because Shakespeare put a lot of cars into his plays, uh, not least Pericles, Prince of Tyre. <laughs> Anthony and Cleopatra. Oh. There's more. Uh, Troilus and Chrysler. Uh, Timondeo of Athens. The Alfa Romeo Gioletta. That's actually a real car. And, uh, and much Audi about nothing. Oh. <laughs> Yes, well, Shakespeare mentions Derby 15 times, but uh, he doesn't, I'm afraid, mention uh, Buxton as far as I can see. Although maybe he was thinking of Buxton when in Henry VI, Part 1, Lord Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, says, let them be whipped through every market town till they come to Berwick from whence they came. So by mentioning market town, we can't help but think of Buxton, of course, England's highest market town. Although actually, contra uh, controversially, uh, Alston in Cumbria claimed to share the title, and I believe there's a bit, a bit of a dispute here, but one thing's for sure, Alston has a much smaller population, uh, Buxton has uh, 20 times as many people living here, so that means that of course uh, Buxton is the largest, highest market town, <laughs> beginning with B. Yeah, yeah. When we say highest, is this altitude we're talking about, rather than yes. <laughs> because I'm just looking at some of the audience and thinking, you never know. <laughs> you never know, but Shakespeare, uh, there may be more connections with Buxton still. Uh, so if that wasn't good enough, Shakespeare did mention the River Wye. For example, in Henry V, all the water in Wye cannot wash your majesty's Welsh blood out of your body, I can tell you that. And although uh, perhaps this is most likely to be referenced to the longer River Wye in and along the border of Wales that runs into the Severn Estuary near Chepstow, it's worth noting that the river running through Buxton and the Pavilion Gardens is also called the Y. This allows for the carefully constructed popular local joke of Buxton residents and geography teachers alike. What river runs through Buxton? Why? B. 
because I want to know. <laughs> the Buxton Y may only be 15 miles in length compared to its longer, partly Welsh, 134-mile namesake. But bear in mind, it is the only and therefore longest River Y running through the largest, highest market town. <laughs> <laughs> I went to a bookshop actually, I said I'd like a book by Shakespeare, he said which one? I said William. <laughs> Can I just end my Shakespearean section by uh, perhaps uh, I've written a carefully constructed ode and I feel it's only fitting to uh, say, uh, influenced of course by my visit to Buxton, um, the highest market town in England begins with B or it's not to be. I'm going to introduce then John Kane. Now, he was born in Ireland in 1746. He was a famous actor and comedian who travelled England, performing in the late 18th century. And he was fulfilling an engagement at the Opera House in Buxton, which is literally a stone's throw from here, sometime in 1799 when he died. Now, according to popular folklore, Kane had a large appetite and he particularly enjoyed roast beef with horseradish sauce. Now, someone in Buxton prepared this dish for him, but instead of wild horseradish, they used a poisonous plant, perhaps Aconitum or Conium maculatum, i.e. hemlock. <coughs> All I'm saying is if you're eating out in Buxton, be careful. <laughs> now, it's worth noting that hemlock is from the same family of flowering plants as carrot, celery, coriander, fennel, parsley and parsnip. So it's good to eat meat, like beef, uh, but best stay off the horseradish, is my advice here. Uh, now John Cain's grave is located at the rear of St Anne's Churchyard in Buxton and is a listed monument due to his fame and also because he was said to have eaten himself to death. So kind of forerunner of Mr Creosote. <laughs> yeah. So during the 19th century, wealthy visitors to Buxton would hire bath chairs, a kind of chaise longue on wheels with a folding hood and bath chairman would pull them around the town. Oh, so I think, uh, did I just walk over your punchline then? No. I was going to say that uh, sadly they died out, it would be nice to take a trip, but I think they were replaced uh, around about uh, the Second World War by the uh, little red bus tram that whizzed around <laughs> yeah. the town, and uh, presumably Buxton's uh, answer to Uber. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've always, my, my goal in life has always been to be become an elderly, elderly dowager pulled around in a bath chair, yes. yelling shrilly at Poirot. That's that is my, <laughs> my my one goal. If I can just achieve that, I'll be I'll be happy. And so, some of these chairs they have their own steering columns, so the guy be pushing at the back, and then suddenly I guess they just kind of veer off while the guy's sitting down. They just have to push. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's so. a class system in in chair form. Indeed. That's incredible. Indeed. One thing I did find out though, were they're not called bath chairs because you sit in them naked with a sponge. But they are called bath chairs because they originate from yes. the uh, place. Are we, are we allowed to singer? mention that other place we're going to oh. be? Oh, yes. How high is it? Not very. <laughs> Do they have a river Y running through? <laughs> Do they have a Shakespeare hotel? I've no idea. Probably. Um, I've got a crescent. Yes, yes, oh, I do. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. It's quite big, actually. Yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll not talk Sorry, about that. Sorry, there was an actual saturation <laughs> of, yeah, all right, it's all fun, but actually stop talking about bath. <laughs> I mentioned it. Sorry. Uh, bath. Yes, bath. That's how they pronounce it. So the Beatles played Buxton twice. Whoa. Mm. They performed in the Pavilion Gardens Ballroom on the 6th of April, 1963, 
on the 19th of October 1963. Uh, my dad used to play with the Beatles. Uh, used to get a magnifying glass in the sun and pull their legs off. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh no, don't do that to us. <laughs> we need our legs. Well, don't be <laughs> Sorry, please cut that out of the podcast. <laughs> they like fans. that, they like that. <laughs> famous, famous musicians that have visited uh, Buxton. It was uh, during the research I was hoping that I would be able to find. Uh, but sadly, it's the case that not only did Shakespeare not visit Buxton, but neither did Shakespeare's sister. <laughs> <laughs> and yet the Beatles did twice, so isn't that strange? Yeah. Okay, some celebrities from Buxton, see if this uh, it's any, anything. So some celebrities include war writer Vera Britton, Testament of Youth writer, also mother of Shirley Williams, which I didn't realise before. Apparently she seems to have hated Buxton. <laughs> Yeah. It's gone quiet. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, uh, Goody's funny man, Tim Brooke Taylor. Yeah. Expelled from primary school at the age of five and a half, apparently. Yeah. Can I just say, Richard, yes. that I noticed that there is a Brooke Taylor's uh, yeah. solicitors, yeah. Yes. Uh, and it's carefully placed, I noticed, and I think I know why, just by the Pelican Crossing. I reckon they just sit there during the week, thinking out for waiting for an accident to happen. So where there's a Actress Elizabeth Spriggs, so she was born in Buxton and apparently had an unhappy childhood. <laughs> it's all on the internet. Um, disc jockey Dave Lee Travis is from here. He's only had one charge of indecent assault by a majority <laughs> Famously known as the hairy cornflake. Uh, yeah. That's all I know about him. I, I know that nickname. Where does that come from? Does he look? I've not seen him. Does he look like a cornflake, or is it because he's enjoyed at breakfast time? What's the, where does it come from? I assume that he was involved in some sort of serial. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm ask, I, don't know. Um, I, think, I think the unfunny answer is that he did present the breakfast show, oh, and right. his beard lent the therefore the uh, the, the, the lent itself to the name. Either that, or if you find one in your bowl, uh, it makes you feel ill. Two more celebrities. We're going down the list here. So we've got ex Coronation Street star Bruno Langley uh, from Buxton. Uh, guilty of sexual assault. <laughs> <laughs> the last one is songstress Lucy Spraggan. Yeah, I thought who as well. <laughs> so uh, that's that's all I've got on my list. Um, so uh, the last topic I had was actually kind of Buxton, but it's actually Harper Hill. Anyone from Harper Hill? It's a small village on the outskirts of Buxton. Now Harper Hill Club had the highest bowling green in England, I think we're talking about elevation here, at 1,000 feet above sea level. It was built for the local quarry workers, and that was before they decided to build houses on it. And also annoying if your uh, bowling ball happens to roll down. Yes. <laughs> it's a long way to retrieve it, isn't it? I thought, I thought it'd be more suitable for curling in these parts. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So in 1938, the RAF dug tunnels to store munitions at Harper Hill. Uh, when the RAF left, the tunnels were then used as a mushroom farm and then later as a cold store for cheese. Got to say, mushroom farm. Mm. <laughs> Just got asking questions. Mm. <laughs> No jokes about that, about being kept in the dark and fed shit. No, <laughs> Mushroom management, as it's known. So. I thought we could have put that on the poster for this show, maybe. Thank you. Any cheese jokes? No. I'm, I'm a vegan, that's quite a Oh, <laughs> sorry about <laughs> that. You even looked at me during the I cheese section. I was beef earlier as well, sorry about that. I always tread very carefully when it comes to jokes. Yeah, it's a matter of 
we could definitely edit that one. I don't. No, I didn't understand that. Because is it a Because I'm vegan. Is there a type of cheese? Tread very carefully. Carefully. Yeah. I genuinely didn't know that was a kind of cheese, sorry. <laughs> they didn't get it either. They've enjoyed it now. It's a good thing I was here not understanding that. The important thing to remember is the podcast does come with a PDF downloadable fact sheet to explain that. <laughs> How about that then? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the last... Oh, well, I wonder where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Oh, well, I've got the onions podcast. Unless on this side as well. Uh, the final fact I've got about Harper Hill is it's home to the HSL, so that's HSE's Health and Safety Laboratory, with a staff of over 350 scientists who investigate serious accidents. And they even have their own underground train. Mm. Oh, it's all hidden away in the hills up there. So, uh, I don't know if there's brass banders coming out of the podcast, but <laughs> we, have, uh, uh, we have some in background music going on in the gardens here. Uh, anything else on the panel? Because our hour is almost up, so this is your last chance to... Uh, Contribute. Because sitting back in their chairs, are they? Well, no, I, no, I saw James sort of meaningfully unfolding his A4 sheets. I, you can see I have nothing in my James hands. James has done so. more research than all the panel I know, together. I was really leaning on James heavily here. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I had one small fact which I, I never mentioned earlier, which is um, it's Racial Harmony Day today in Singapore, oh. which makes you wonder what happens in the other three hundred and sixty. One day. Yeah, that's the day to visit, it seems. Yeah. Oh, well, I have to ask too. Does anybody else know this? I found this out yesterday. Luna 15, which was a Soviet probe, crashed into the moon on July 21st, 1969, a few hours before the moon landing. Really? As a giant fuck you. <laughs> like, we got there first. Yeah, we didn't put a man on there. Yeah, we didn't bring him back, but we got there first. Yeah, yeah. As a giant, like that. It's education. Who knew? Well, thank you. I, mean, I think in retrospect it's a good thing that the West won the space race with, by landing on the moon because, you know, had, had communism triumphed, we, you know, we could live in a world where democracy was a meaningless farce and power was collected in the hands of a tiny corrupt <laughs> minority <laughs> trust the media, so narrow escape for us. I Excellent point, because in 1974, on 21st of July, the US House Judiciary approved two articles of impeachment against President Nixon. Which, uh, uh, an amazing thing, history not repeating itself. <laughs> Just one thing I did want to mention, right, uh, because I don't want to let yeah. Buxton yeah. off the hook uh, completely when it comes to politics. Uh, did you know there's a connection between Buxton and the Titanic that I mentioned earlier? And by the way, uh, I'm not talking about the Cheshire Cheese Pub. Has anyone been there? Yes. Yeah. Uh, beer from the Titanic Brewery, which I haven't tried yet, but I'm looking forward to uh, sinking one or two later. Don't put ice in your beer. But did you know that Sidney Charles Buxton, I don't think he was actually connected to the town other than by his name, and he was in fact the first Earl Buxton, was the president of the Board of Train at the, uh, Trade at the time that the Titanic sank, and it was him who'd been in post for two years, and indeed his predecessors, who resisted the call to increase the number of lifeboats to match, uh, can you imagine the crazy idea of matching the number of uh, lifeboat seats to the roughly the number of people that you might be carrying, so uh, carry on board, but uh, at least it's good that um, nowadays uh, we live in a time when our politicians and leaders wouldn't put business uh, before <laughs> Well, sadly, our hour is up. Um, so it just remains for me to thank the, the panellists' guests today. So please uh, say thank you to Ben Ennis, to Gerard Harris, James Clinton, and Alistair Beckett-King.
And I'd also like to thank the Rotunda Theatre and the Buxton Fringe Festival for hosting us. I've just got one final on this day, the 21st of July. So on this day in 1967, the actor Basil Rathbone died. He was South African-born, but an English actor who played the part of Sherlock Holmes in 14 Hollywood films made between 1939 and 1946. And he is quoted as saying, Never regret anything that you've done with a sincere affection. Nothing is lost that is born of the heart. Thank you.